Hello, everybody. This is the 40th in the series of podcasts produced by the British Society for Hematology. This podcast covers the recording significant hemoglobinopathies guideline. We're recording this over Zoom, so we apologize in advance for any loss in sound quality that may occur. My name is Noemi Roy. I'm a consultant hematologist in Oxford at the Oxford University Hospitals NHS Foundation Trust. I look after people living with sickle cell disease, thalassemia, and rare inherited anemias. I'm also the rare anemia representative on the National Hemoglobinopathy Panel. So our guideline today is the Significant Hemoglobinopathies, a guideline for screening and diagnosis. And this was first published on the 19th of April, 2023. I've got two guests with me um, to discuss this recording, and those are Jenny Eglinton and Melanie Proven, and I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Jennifer Eglinton, and I look after the antenatal and newborn screening at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford. Um, I'm a qualified BMS um, and trained both in South Africa and England. Thank you. Uh, what about you, Mel? Hi, I'm uh, Melanie Proven. I'm a principal clinical scientist working um, sort of on the genetic testing of haemoglobinopathies. And I've also been starting to work um, with NEQAS, um, providing the expert commentary. And uh, alongside with Jenny, we we both also provide a kind of um, helpline for people who need help with um, interpreting complex haemoglobinopathy cases. So the first thing is really what the guideline is for and what we're going to cover in the podcast. So the guideline, who are the guideline is for, and it's really for anybody that's involved in hemoglobinopathy uh, testing or screening. So this could be uh, clinical teams uh, like consultant hematologists or registrars, but it could also include um, biomedical scientists and people who are involved in the screening program. So that might include some midwives. Now, we've got in the guidelines some issues around screening and some issues around diagnosis and those are really quite different things and so today we're just going to focus on the screening which we thought would be the most useful thing for people to find out a bit more about. So I thought we'd start with the definition and so screening is the process of identifying apparently healthy people who may have an increased chance of a disease condition. Once we've done the screening, we can offer more information, further tests and treatments. And the whole point of doing a screening program is so that we can reduce associated problems or complications. So Jenny, um, I wondered if you could explain what are the sort of two screening programs and, and sort of why do we have two? What are we looking for? Yes. So the purpose of both the antenatal and the newborn screening program is to detect sickle cell and thalassemia. These are known as hemoglobinopathies. Hemoglobinopathies are recessively inherited conditions affecting the hemoglobin molecules in the red blood cells. And we know that these are required to carry oxygen around the blood and the body. So the aim of screening is to ensure an accessible and high quality program is available throughout England and is designed to support people to make informed choices during their pregnancy and ensure appropriate follow-up and transition into clinical care. It also aims to support a greater understanding of the genetic conditions and, um, emphasis, and emphasizes the value of screening. Hemoglobinopathy is divided into both structural variants 
or thalassemias. The most important structural variant is sickle hemoglobin and is of clinical significance in combination with other important variants such as hemoglobin C, D-Punjab, E, O-Arab and Lepore. Structural variants are also known as qualitative defects and we look for both the carrier and disease forms. Thalassemias, on the other hand, are a group of quantitative disorders where the hemoglobin production is reduced or absent. A reduction in the hemoglobin impacts on its oxygen carrying capacity. So the important thalassemias we need to detect is beta, alpha zero, HBH, and delta beta thalassemia. As we are looking for genetic conditions, consent for testing is vital. Ethnicity is also important as certain ethnic groups are at more risk of hemoglobinopathies. In the antenatal setting, we try to identify couples who have a hemoglobinopathy and whose baby is at risk of inheriting a significant disorder. Once identified, the couple, the couple can be offered P&D to definitively determine the risk and offer termination if they wish. In the antenatal setting, we try to pick up carriers for hemoglobin S, C, D, E, and O-Arab, as well as sickle cell disease, SS, or S in combination with C, D, E, and O-Arab, as well as transfusion-dependent thalassemia. Early detection of these disease states improves outcomes through early detection, treatment, counseling, and follow-up care. It is well known that early administration of prophylactic antibiotics and vaccinations reduces the incidence of pneumococcal sepsis, which can trigger sickle cell crises. Morbidity and mortality is reduced through early treatment and clinical monitoring. So, um, Jenny, you mentioned PND, so that's prenatal diagnosis, right? Correct. Um, and, and that's something that maybe people are not really aware of, that uh, we are trying to identify carriers and then we want to identify the couples at risk. And then we are offering um, termination if the PND, the prenatal diagnosis sample, comes back showing an affected, um, an affected fetus. Okay, um, so Mel, let's just talk a little bit more about the antenatal screening. So can you take us through how it's set up and, and any differences there are across the country? Yep, so um, annual the antenatal screening process is kind of kicked off by the antenatal booking appointment where the lady goes to speak to her GP um, to, to, and, and then she speaks to a specialist, well, a specialist nurse who will take lots of information and Hemoglobinopathies aren't the only um, sort of form of screening in the in the country, but they're one of the the important ones. Probably, I think the only one that involves um, an autosomal recessive disorder. So the midwife um, will explain the reason for the screening to the lady. Um, she'll obtain information about her family origins. And she will um, get consent for this, the screening, assuming that the lady wishes to go ahead with it. There's very high consent rates now, which is really good. Um, and then they will take a blood sample and that will be sent to the lab alongside the referral paperwork. And what the lab does depends on whether they are in a high or a low prevalence area. So in low prevalence areas, there's less than 1% of all the, an the antenatals um, have significant mutations found. And for these labs, they, they generate a full blood count um, in everyone to look at 
um, sort of red cell indices, particularly the MCH, um, with a view to ruling out thalassemias in these women. So in low prevalence areas, most women won't have or won't be carriers of haemoglobinopathies. Um, and in addition to this, they look at the family of origin because the certain couples with high risk ethnic backgrounds um, have HPLC done as well to look for haemoglobin variants or for beta thalassemia. The high prevalence areas, um, these are areas where more than 2% of, um, of the population are carriers. Uh, HPLC is undertaken on everyone in, in combination with the full blood count. And then following this, um, you kind of have to put together the two sets of results and the ethnic origin to, to work out whether or not to invite the father of the baby in for testing. And again, the family of origin questionnaire is important in high prevalence areas because it will affect um, whether you consider a couple to be at high risk of alpha zero thalassemia. So this is really important. And I think if, if we wanted people to remember just one thing from this podcast, it would be about making sure that um, the family of origin questionnaire gets filled in and that all this information is accurate because um, the, the bottom line is that what's happening in the lab very much depends on those answers and the decisions that are taken about what further testing to go on to really depend on the answers to those questions. Um, I've noticed, Mel, you've used the term the father's baby, and we, we were careful not to say the woman's partner, because it's important that we are sure that we are testing the father's baby, the baby's father, even the baby's father, rather than the um, than the woman's partner. Um, so that's helpful to know about the high prevalence versus low prevalence areas, although I think there are some, some um, moves to just moving everybody over to the same algorithm isn't there i mean that's that's not current but it it can get a little bit confusing to work out uh what the algorithm is um and that maybe every, we should do the same thing for every single individual so one of the really key things to understand about hemoglobinopathy testing whether it's screening or diagnosis is that we don't use one method we always have to use two methods and so the first method is called um well, this is just the first method, and then your second method is called the confirmation, and there's good reasons for that. So I was going to ask Jenny to maybe discuss a little bit about, you know, why this is important and what different methods do people use for these um, for these tests? So two screening methods that are suitable um, for most laboratories for first lines um, screening are variants and hemoglobin A2 quantitation, which is so important, um, is two techniques called um, HPLC and CE. So HPLC stands for high performance liquid chromatography. CE stands for capillary electrophoresis. And both of these techniques are um, fully automated. Um, they are good in that they, they are literally stand alone and you can walk away and come back and then proceed with your interpretation. So both techniques, um, both machines use slightly different techniques to separate the different hemoglobin molecules based on their ionic charge. Both have the advantage um, 
of being designed for high throughput of samples. So those laboratories with really big workloads can just plough loads of samples through. Both give accurate um, hemoglobin F, hemoglobin S, hemoglobin A2 quantitations, and will also detect D-Punjab, GFIL, um, as well, which are so important to differentiate between these these different um, variant hemoglobins. Unfortunately, the limitation, there are limitations on either sides. On HPLC, um, the hemoglobin E and hemoglobin Lepore doesn't separate from the A2, which CE does. On CE, unfortunately, there is an overlap of hemoglobin C with A2. In CE, the presence of hemoglobin A2 and A or hemoglobin F and A2 is needed to confirm and determine the migration position of your different hemoglobins, which then permits a provisional diagnosis of the variant that is detected. HPLC unfortunately has the disadvantage in that it will also separate your um, glycosylated and derivative forms of your hemoglobin, which can occasionally, if you've, there's not much experience, can complicate um, interpretation. But it does mean that if you're picking up glycosylated um, fractions, you can possibly um, diagnose an unsuspected diabetes on, on a test, which could have the added advantage from a clinical aspect. Um, but it is important that all laboratories who select the various methodologies is important that to know that they need to know the limitations and the advantages of their technique and just get to know their machine particularly well. And if if you know there's a limitation, alleviate and put fail safes in place to ensure that you are picking up as much as possible. As Nuaini mentioned before, all hemoglobin variants that are picked up on one method needs to be confirmed using a secondary method where the scientific pr principle is different from the first. So if HPLC has been selected as your primary method, suitable alternative methods that could be used for confirmation are acid and alkali electrophoresis, IEF, which stands for isoelectrophocusin, or CE. If CE has been selected as your primary method, suitable alternative confirmatory methods for your confirmation include acid and alkali, electrophoresis, HPLC, IEF. Another two methods um, that could be used by laboratories but are a little bit more specialist and do require um, specialist laboratories and expertise is DNA analysis um, as well as mass spectrometry. So if sickle hemoglobin is detected on first-line screening, the sickle solubility test is regarded as appropriate confirmatory test. So we've mentioned a lot of variants here, but when it comes to thalassemia carriers, um, classic beta thalassemia in, in terms of laboratory is the only hemoglobinopathy well, that does not require confirmatory testing as long as it meets the specific criteria for diagnosis. And namely that is raised hemoglobin A2 of between 3.5% and 8, has a raised red cell count, has a low MCV and MCH. If there is any, any doubt though, DNA is recommended to ensure that a definitive diagnosis is made for beta thalassemia. So the BSH guidelines are very clear and support the antenatal screening handbook guidelines. The action level for both F and hemoglobin A2 are very specific and should not be changed. 
These cutoffs ensure that beta thalassemia carriers are rarely missed. It is recognized, however, that some very mild and atypical beta thal mutations, where the hemoglobin A2 levels fall below 3.5, these may be missed. This is something that is covered in the UK antenatal screening risk assessment. Cases such as these are continually monitored via instance and outcome data. Okay, um, so I think now we're getting into some really very technical things, and this mm. is where we get into, you know, who is this guideline for? And if it's for somebody that's actually doing the diagnostic work, then a lot of this detail is super important in setting up a service in a lab and in quality assessing and quality um, uh, verifying the service. Whereas for a lot of the clinical people, um, that level of detail is sometimes not needed. Having said that, uh, I just want to bring Mel back in to discuss the value of the MCH. So the MCH is the mean cell hemoglobin, and that's really not an, a red cell indices, a red cell index rather, that we use often clinically. So when we're seeing patients in clinic, we never look at the MCH. We tend to look at the MCV. However, it's really critical for decision making about the risk of alpha zero thalassemia. So I wondered, Mel, if you could take us through that, please. Yes, yeah, so as you said, um, often MCV is looked at and historically it was used more often, but in more recent times, the MCH value was found to be more reliable and less influenced by factors such as the age of the sample. So that's why um, the screening tend to use use that as a the index to set thresholds and things like that. Um, so... The MCH is the mean cell hemoglobin, and that's low in thalassemias because, as we've, as Jenny said already, thalassemias are a quantitative issue with producing the right amount of hemoglobin. So when you're not making as much hemoglobin, you've got less in each cell. So that's why the MCH is low. So uh, the screening program used a cutoff of below 27 for considering whether alpha thalassemia might be present or uh, you know and it's also applied to beta thalassemia um, combined with the a2 as jenny was explaining um it's important to remember that if you've got beta thalassemia you also have to consider whether that person might also be a carrier of alpha zero thalassemia because it's not uncommon for people to have both types of mutation in certain populations if alpha zero thalassemia is suspected, then urgent DNA testing should be offered to confirm the diagnosis. Because unlike beta thalassemia and the sickle variants that Jenny's been going through, alpha zero thalassemia cannot be accurately diagnosed using screening methods. So you can suspect it's there, but because of phenocop quite common phenocopies like homozygous alpha plus thalassemia, which isn't as clinically significant, or iron deficiency, which is also common, um, these can mimic um, the red cell indices of alpha thalassemia. So if you suspect that it's there, you, you do need to confirm it using genetic testing. Um, mm. And another thing to bear in mind, because I, I just said that iron deficiency mimics alpha thalassemia, just like you can get alpha and beta thalassemia, you can also get alpha thalassemia and iron deficiency. 
So just because you know or suspect that someone might have iron deficiency, you shouldn't say, oh, they've got a low MCH, it's just their low iron levels. They could still also have thalassemia. Um, and in the context of a pregnancy, there isn't enough time to give the woman um, enough iron supplementation to make her iron replete. So you have to kind of treat her as, you know, as a possible carrier of thalassemia and follow up with further testing. Um, otherwise, you kind of miss the window of, of being able to offer prenatal diagnosis. And and really what we're looking for here is what we we want to avoid is hemoglobin Bart's hydrops fatalis. So just yes. to remind our listeners, the alpha zero is when you have no alpha globin on one chromosome. So both alpha globin genes are missing, whereas alpha plus is when you've got one present and one missing. So you might have somebody with um, two hemoglobin, alpha globin genes missing, but one on each chromosome. Now they'll be completely fine. And the worst that they can pass down to the next generation is one missing alpha, uh, alpha globin gene. Whereas if somebody's got one chromosome with two alpha globin genes and the other chromosome has both of them missing, then they can pass down the one with both missing. And if that combines with the other parent, well, the father having two missing as well, then the baby couldn't make hemoglobin F because they would have no alpha globins at all. And that is essentially lethal in utero. Okay, um, before we uh, wrap up, and um, I'll just give a few of the uh, overall recommendations from the guideline, I just wanted to bring Jenny back for a few words about the newborn screening. So this is where we screen every newborn baby, irrespective of color, ethnicity, family of origin, all of that is just disregarded, and they have these heel prick tests. Now, there's lots of other genetic conditions being tested for. This is the Guthrie card, and hemoglobinopathies is added to that. But Jenny, why is that a little bit more complicated on the lab side? Um, so yeah, it's a difficult, um, a bit more difficult than say, I mean, adults obviously have huge complexity. And in addition to thalassemias, you need to consider that thalassemia can also be inherited with a structural variant as well, and that will have classic picture. And laboratories will have lots, lots of experience in order to diagnose that. So it's it, we shouldn't separate thalassemia in one and sickle in the other. They can be combined, and it's just your labs just haven't the experience to um, to to notice that, um, and they and obviously ask advice um, should they need to. When it comes to newborns, it's a little bit more difficult because babies. Tend to express a high, have a high expression of hemoglobin um, F at birth, and hemoglobin F is important hemoglobin um, in in newborns and um, fetuses in that it has evolved to increase the transfer of oxygen from maternal to fetal tissues, and this is achieved um, by hemoglobin F having a high affinity for oxygen. Um, but once the baby's born, this F is no longer, not as much F is needed. And globin switching, which is literally a switch from hemoglobin F being produced to more hemoglobin A, will take will start to take place until full conversion has taken place by three to six months. Um, but it is known that prematurity may delay the switch. Because of the high expression of hemoglobin F, it does mean at birth or at, when a sample is taken at day five, it does mean that there is a low expression of the normal adult hemoglobin 
um, being seen in children's samples. And it, it's important that all laboratories select analyzers that have the specificity and sensitivity to detect these low levels of um, hemoglobin A. And as a consequence, there will also be low levels of the variant if, one, if they were present. Alpha chain variants are also known to cause laboratories huge diagnostic confusion uh, in the newborn period because of the combinations of the, the different globin chains. And unfortunately, they could mask um, the important factors that we use for diagnosis. The hemoglobin A2, um, which is such an important parameter in the adults, um, in order to diagnose beta thal is not actually hugely expressed in the neonatal period. So we know quite clearly that um, in, on this type of testing at newborn screening, we will not pick up beta thalassemia carriers. And in addition to that, we won't pick up hemoglobin Lepore, which needs A2 to be expressed. It's another problem we have in the laboratory is that if neonates are transfused red cells, unfortunately, what we are measuring is healthy donor red cells. So we're not actually measuring the baby's red cells. So unfortunately, this is an added complication, but we do recognize sometimes there is not an opportunity to take um, a pre-transfusion sample. So the options we have as a laboratory is to send this transfused DNA, as, uh, this transfused sample of physical DNA, and we should be able to get a quick result, but it will only give us information about sickle. And if any other hemoglobins um, such as C, D, beta thal major is present, we will miss that. And sometimes we just need to recognize that if, if beta or C is in the family, that maybe a 120-day um, post-transfusion sample will be needed at a later stage. Right. Thank you so much. So um, I think it's fair to say that the people who write these reports, you guys in the lab, um, usually try and do so in a very clear manner. First of all, you're aware that the people who are reading the reports uh, don't tend to be um, as experienced in hemoglobin empathies as you are, and that sometimes it's often midwives that will read the reports. Um, so uh, you always make those recommendations very clear. And I guess I would just encourage if anybody's confused by any results or, or next steps that they should contact their laboratory for further information. So I'm just going to um, finish up now with a few more recommendations, which is, so we've really focused on uh, what to do for pregnant ladies and trying to make a diagnosis of the fetus and then a diagnosing a newborn child. But really all of these conditions can actually be avoided now if we could get people to get themselves tested before they try to have a baby and they could have a pre-implantation genetic diagnosis called PGD, where this is a bit like IVF and they would be essentially um, it's a facilitated pregnancy so that you can test the embryos. So you've got two people who are um, sickle or thalassemia carriers. They would, you would do like IVF and then you would um, test the embryos and put back an embryo that is not affected by the condition. And so in the screening um, guidelines, we've included that GPs should consider preconceptual screening and diagnosing of their patients of childbearing age in high-risk groups. And um, for some people, they would rather have premarital screening because um, they would not want to have something like an assisted pregnancy. And so because I've mentioned IVF, um, it's also included in the guideline that it's important that clinics that carry out assisted conception should always carry out relevant screening 
and testing of both the egg donor and the sperm donor. And that's because otherwise we're not able, we don't have access to the parents and we're not able to do further testing. So the recommendation is that the donor should be tested at the time of donation. So thank you everybody for listening to this podcast. If you want to know a little bit more about uh, hemoglobinopathy screening and diagnosis, please do go to the bsh.org.uk website and you can have a look at the full guideline. Uh, there's also a lot of other podcasts on other topics, which you're also very welcome to download. And do get in touch if you have any questions about this specific guideline, because we're always happy to help and advise. Thank you. Thank you.